Philippians chapter number one. This morning we'll be in verses 15 through 18. We read 12 through 18, and, and because really it's all kind of one section there. I know last week we only went through uh, the first three verses, but, uh, but really it's all kind of one section, one topic that, that Paul is discussing here in this passage. And, uh, and so we're going to continue really with the same message. Um, the, the title of the message again is The Unexpected Blessings of persecution. Um, it just continued this week. So the unexpected blessings of persecution. Um, so we're going to continue with this passage kind of all the same vein for a couple of reasons. We had a little power uh, surge last week. I think some of you probably noticed things flashing up on the, on the screen behind me while I was preaching. It was kind of going crazy back in the back. Um, so I, I knew something was going on, but we lost the uh, most of the audio from the sermon. So uh, this will give me a chance to kind of re-preach that. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, this will give me a chance to just kind of go back through those those points as we were able to get those uh, uploaded for those who uh, may not have been here last week. So we're looking at these unexpected blessings of persecution. And uh, the big idea is the same as we continue through these, uh, these next few verses, and that is that although persecution is inevitable for those who believe and proclaim the gospel, we can endure it with joy, knowing God's purpose will overcome. All right, so if you, if you have notes from last week, you can just put a little hashtag in there, you know, same as, same as last week. That's the big idea. Last week, we looked at three different unexpected uh, blessings of persecution. The first one we looked at was the unexpected comfort. Unexpected comfort, and that's in, in verse 12, says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has already served to advance the gospel. Um, we talked about last week that Paul had experienced great persecution. We kind of listed all the different things that had happened to Paul uh, just recently, really from the time that he was in Jerusalem till now when he is in Rome and he's writing to the church of Philippi. And, and the church of Philippi was aware of what was going on. They were aware that, that he was in prison. They were aware um, of some of the things that had happened along the way. They had sent Epaphroditus with a, a financial gift to help him um, and just himself to be an encouragement to Paul. So Paul knows that they, uh, they are aware of the things that are going on and, and he wants to provide them some comfort. He wants to let them know it really is okay. It's all right. God's got this, right? And so what is the comfort that he provides? Very simply, it's that no matter what God has allowed to happen in his life, it was not hindering his mission. No matter what persecution came, no matter what man did, it did not hinder what God was doing through him. It did not hinder the spread of the gospel. In fact, not only did it not hinder it, but it was working through and overcoming the persecution by advancing to many places it may not otherwise have reached. So he, he gives this encouragement, this comfort to the Philippians. He says, it's okay. Don't worry. It's all right. The gospel is still going forward. Notice he didn't give anything about himself, really. He didn't, he didn't say, it's okay. You know, I'm, I'm getting rest. I may, I've got three meals a day. I'm, 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 I'm healthy. It's all good. No, what was his focus? His focus was on the gospel. 
His focus was redirecting their focus, not to his pain, but rather to the gospel and whether or not it was going forward. And he says, let me encourage you, let me comfort you. The gospel is moving forward, even during persecution. So we have unexpected comfort. Secondly, we looked at unexpected converts. Unexpected converts in verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. As Paul stood before governors, as he stood before a king even in this process along the way, he was able to share the gospel with them. He was able to share his testimony with them. He was able to proclaim Jesus Christ to them. In fact, in in one instance, if I remember correctly, it was Felix, kept him around for two years, kept bringing him back to talk to him, right? So the gospel was going forth, even to people that otherwise he may not have had contact with because of this persecution. Here he was sitting in prison, actually sitting in a house at this point. He's sitting in, in a house for two years, if I remember correctly, but he's chained to a guard and not just any guard. These weren't just normal prison guards. This was the Praetorian guard. Right? This was Caesar's special guard. These are the ones who, who protected Caesar, and protected his household, and protected other public officials, and, and they took care of Caesar's prisoners. And so he's chained to this guard, this revolving uh, group of guards. And no doubt while they are there, they're, they're, he's not chained to them, they're chained to him because he's sharing the gospel. He's able to meet with people. It says in Acts that people were able to come and talk to him. He's able to, to, to show Christ to these guards as he interacts with other believers, as he shares the gospel with them, no doubt. And, and, his, and his fame, so to speak, is then being spread throughout the whole imperial guard, the whole Praetorian guard. Everyone knows about Paul. Everybody knows about that guy in the house that, that we all have to take turns you know, standing next to for I think it's like six hours or something like that a day. Everybody knows him. Everybody knows why he's there. And that message begins to to permeate not only the guard, but even it says all the rest. And we know from the end of Philippians that that includes Caesar's house. That includes people in Caesar's own household, his servants, potentially even relatives of Caesar who became believers. So the gospel was overcoming and provided unexpected converts. Thirdly, and lastly from last week, we looked at unexpected courage. In verse 14, it says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. The reality of Paul's imprisonment and the purpose of Paul's imprisonment has not caused the saints to shrink in fear. Isn't that an amazing testimony? Now, it wasn't everybody. He says most, right? But most is a lot. Most is most. It's not some. It's most. More than 50%. So most of the believers in Rome are now impassioned to serve Jesus Christ because of Paul's imprisonment. They, they look to Paul, and, and it, it is motivating their their response, and it's a response of boldness to preach Christ. This is a profound response to persecution, is it not? We do not naturally uh, respond to persecution in a bold way for Christ. You know, usually we'll respond to persecution in one of two ways. We'll respond to persecution by shrinking back, by hiding, by quieting down, by, by not saying things, 
well, I just, I'll just keep my, keep my mouth shut and then people won't persecute me, right? So that's, that's one way that we typically see it. The other way, oftentimes that we see it, especially here in the United States, is we see a response not in boldness for the gospel, but in anger for our rights. We get mad when somebody starts persecuting us. We think, that's not fair. I don't deserve that. I'm an American. You can't treat me like that. That's oftentimes how we see, unfortunately, the church as a whole, the leaders in the church responding to persecution, even here in America. And that's not the response that we're seeing from the believers in Rome. They weren't standing up for their rights. They were standing up for the gospel of Jesus Christ. They weren't standing up saying, hey, don't treat us like that. They were just standing up and saying, Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Unexpected courage. So this morning, I want to look at two more unexpected blessings of persecution. This first one may sound a little bit weird, but it's unexpected conflict. Unexpected conflict. Let's see what it is here in verses 15 through 17. It says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. All right, so how is conflict a blessing? All right, you're, you're kind of stretching it here, David. <laughs> you know, um, I just needed another C, really. No, I'm just kidding. Um, how, how is conflict a blessing? Well, we see there's these two groups, right? There's two groups here. There's a group that is, that is preaching the gospel uh, with wrong motives, and there's a group that is preaching the gospel with right motives. And, and as we look at the, the, this conflict here, I think there's three reasons why I see this as a blessing. And I think even Paul, even though it, it was designed to hurt him, we'll look at that here in a minute, um, even though it was designed to hurt him, I think even he understood that this was a blessing. And I'll give you three reasons why. First, conflict is a confirmation that Paul is obeying Christ. Conflict is a confirmation that Paul is obeying Christ. We looked last week at the passage in Timothy where Paul says to Timothy, those who live godly will what? Suffer persecution. We know that all those who live godly will suffer persecution. Now, usually when we think of persecution, um, we think of that being from the world, right? We think of that being from outside the ranks of the body of Christ. But unfortunately, many times that persecution can come from inside the body of Christ. Those who name the name of Christ. So one of the things that, that we can see as a blessing through this conflict is that Paul knows that he's doing right. Whether it's the world persecuting him or other believers persecuting him, he knows that he's doing right. Conflict can be a blessing because it can show us that we are on the right path. Second, conflict reveals those who is on whose side. Conflict reveals who's on whose side. He made it very clear in this passage, there are those who are trying to afflict him. There are those who are trying to, to make his life hard, who are envious and, and rivalry. And then there are those who are doing it out of 
kindness, out of love, out of understanding. And he can see the two groups and, and he can therefore then see who maybe needs to be rebuked and who needs to be encouraged. He can see those who are, who are preaching wrong, who have wrong motives, and he can see those who are preaching the gospel and love. And he can kind of make that division. It's so easy sometimes for, for us to hide in the church, is it not? For us to put on the happy face, for us to act like everything's okay, like we're growing in Christ, we know the lingo, we know the words to say, we know, uh, we even might you know, give a little testimony, and yet really everything going on inside is selfishness and our own desires. And Paul says conflict, when it comes in the church, it, it's a good thing because it reveals who's on which side. Thirdly, Paul is able to see the motives of the bad group as reminders in chapter two of what the Philippians should not be like. We'll get there in a few weeks. But he's going to, he's going to tell them, look, don't be like this. He's going to give them some of these words that he uses to describe this group of people. And he's going to say, that's not how you should be living. And he's just given them an example here in chapter one of what they're like. And now he's able in chapter two to point back to them and say, don't be like that. So he's able to use them as an example to others of what not to be like because of this conflict. And fourthly, Paul is able to provide instruction for how they should respond to this as well. So the blessing of conflict is Paul now has a teaching opportunity. He now has an opportunity to show the Philippians how you respond to conflict in the body of Christ. How you respond when, when others in the body of Christ are preaching Christ, but they're doing it out of a motive that is even possibly to hurt you, to harm you, to, to make you feel sorrowful, to make you feel inadequate. He's going to show them exactly how to respond and how he responds here in chapter one. So let's look at this group uh, that Paul talks about. Obviously, there's two groups here, uh, a bad group and a good group. We'll talk about the bad group first because um, he kind of spends more time on them, really, and, and everything that's, that's wrong with, with what they're doing. So who are these people? It just says that some of these who are now bold to proclaim the gospel, remember verse 14, says that most were, were proclaiming the gospel and they were doing it with boldness, right? So it's the same group that we're talking about. We're talking about these people who are boldly proclaiming Jesus Christ. And he says, now some of these are the ones who are acting this way. All right, some of these ones who are bold to proclaim Christ, they are some of the ones that are acting this way. And again, some is not most, right? Some is not most. We don't know exactly uh, how many there are. He doesn't, he doesn't tell us that. We don't know if it's, uh, if it's a large minority. I would say it's probably a minority since he says some and not most. But we know that there is a, there's a subsection of those who are preaching Jesus Christ boldly that are doing it for the wrong motive. We don't know even if uh, the Philippians know about this. They, they know about a lot of the other persecutions that Paul has, but maybe it's even gotten back to the Philippians that, um, that some of this stuff is going on and maybe that's some of their concern as well. And so Paul is going to call out these ones who are preaching with, with false motives 
and, and help the Philippians understand how to interact and how to deal with people who act like this. So what are these motives? There's four or five motives here that I want to look at in this passage, starting in verse 15. He says, some indeed preach Christ from envy. Some indeed preach Christ from envy. The Greek word there is phthonos. It's a weird spelling. Phthonos. Uh, It literally means envy or jealousy. Envy or jealousy has the idea of spite and resentment toward the success or possessions of another. Think about that. Spite and resentment toward the success or possessions of another. There are some who were preaching Christ, but they were envious or resentful of Paul's success. Some of these who were bold were preaching Jesus Christ, but they were envious. They they wanted the success that Paul had. Here's Paul, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's, He's done all these great things, spreading the gospel around the Gentile world. And now this great apostle is in their city. He came to their city. And now he's getting fame in their city. He's even in prison and he's still having success. And they were envious of this. They, they didn't like that Paul was being successful, successful here, even in prison, even under guard in, a, in this house. That wasn't fair. It wasn't right. Perhaps, you know, they weren't seeing the same number of people saved that, that Paul was seeing. Or maybe they've heard the stories about Paul and, and, and they see, maybe some of them even visited him and, and saw that he, he, he was just a man <laughs> and, and, and wondered how in the world does he get all this success? All of these people have come to Christ through him. Perhaps they were not able to reach the same types of people Paul had reached. We talk about the different people that Paul had been able to, to share the gospel with, especially recently during this persecution. And there they are in Rome and maybe they're looking at Paul and, and the success of the gospel through Paul going to the, the, the household even of Caesar, a place maybe that they haven't been able to penetrate with their sermons and they're envious of Paul and his success. Perhaps they didn't get the same love and support that they see coming to Paul. After all, here's a church that Paul is writing to who has sent funds to help him, who sent a person to help him. Maybe they're thinking, man, I could, I could use some funds. I could use some money. I could use some help, some workers. And they become envious of Paul's success. They were envious of Paul's success because they saw it as Paul's success, not as God's blessing. Think about that. They were envious of Paul's success, not because they understood God was working through him, but for some reason they viewed that as if something he had done, that he was somehow successful in and of himself. And if we're not careful, we can begin to focus on those outward things as well. Maybe there's another church around the area that seems to be growing faster than we are. Maybe there's another believer that you, that you know of that is here at this church. 
Maybe they're outside this church and, and they just seem to really be uh, used of God, whether it's in a ministry in the church or, or they just, they're really good at sharing the gospel and they're, and they're talking to people and they're constantly leading people to Christ. And you hear these testimonies and you get just a little bit jealous, a little envious. Well, why, why can't I, I, I'm, I know more of the Bible than they do. Why don't I get to see that success? And if we're not careful, we can begin to look at the blessings of God in ministry and evangelism and see them simply as successes of men. And when we do that, we are prone to envy. We are prone to jealousy. <clears throat> Secondly, we see this word rivalry. In verse 15, he says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. Rivalry, this is the, the word eris. means strife or contention. Has the idea of a bitter conflict or a heated, often violent dissension. Has this idea of this rivalry takes, takes envy to kind of the next level, right? First of all, they're just jealous of what Paul has. And now they're going to do something about it, right? They're just jealous. They're envious. But now they're, they're preaching Christ. Somehow they're preaching Christ, not just out of envy, but out of rivalry, out of rivalry. I think it's interesting that um, this, the concept has this idea of dissension as well. They, they wanted to outdo him. They wanted to be bigger and better and stronger than him. They wanted to be so successful that they could rub it in his face. That sounds Christian, doesn't it? That's the rivalry. As they looked at Paul, they probably thought something like this. Here is someone who claims to be an apostle, but look how I did him. Here's an apostle, but he's sitting in this house chained to a guard. I can do better than that. Look what I can do. That this idea of rivalry includes the concept of dissension. Perhaps in an effort to obtain more followers, they were starting to teach things that Paul would be against. They were starting to even teach some, some side things, not the gospel, Clearly they were preaching Christ, but they might have begun to teach other things that they knew Paul disagreed with. They were starting to dissent from his teachings. Perhaps they began to, to focus on words that would draw men to themselves. Things that Paul had warned other teachers of in the past. I think of Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 30. It says this as Paul is speaking to the elders at Ephesus. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. This is a very real danger, not only in Ephesus, but in every church that men would rise up and, and even begin speaking things that would not be true, not be biblical in order to draw men to themselves. He, he speaks of the same thing in 2 Timothy 4, 
verses 1 through 4, as he gives his final charge to Timothy before he is to die. And he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I can't help but wonder if part of this rivalry is really false teaching. Maybe not like completely false teaching, but just different. Just not quite in line with what Paul would have taught. Just dissenting a little bit. They, they were preaching Jesus Christ. They were preaching Jesus Christ crucified. But maybe they were taking on other things with that. Maybe their focus was more on moralistic preaching. Just, just do these things and, and you're good. Check off this list and you're spiritual. Maybe they were more self-help preaching. Everybody's good. It's okay. Compliment yourself. You're not a sinner. I don't know how you preach Christ well with that, but people try to do it. Maybe it was even political preaching. We saw that they were bold, right? Bold in, in a time of Nero. Getting ready to start really persecuting the church. They're bold. Maybe it was, it was political sermons. You know, every Sunday, man, they were just talking about how they, have, they should have the right to preach the gospel. And live the way that we want to. And maybe even twisting some things that Paul had said in the past. Maybe it was much of what we see today in the health and prosperity gospel. Oh, we preach Christ and him crucified, but you know, if you, if, once you've been saved, you deserve this. Right? You deserve to be happy and healthy and prosper, prosperous. We don't know exactly what the dissension was, but all we have to do is look at the preachers today and we probably have a pretty good idea. Those who are heaping to themselves people who want to hear things that make them happy. Things that don't point out their sin and the way that they need to change to become like Christ. Things that, that just help them feel good about themselves. Feel good about uh, what they should be uh, experiencing. Their rivalry and their envy and their desire to be looked at as better than Paul was leading them into teachings that went against Paul's own teachings. Do we not see that today? Do we not see an abundance of teachers proclaiming Christ, but yet teaching false doctrine? The next words here is selfish ambition. Jump down into verse uh, 17. He says, the former, talking about this group, proclaimed Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but, making, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. This idea of rivalry is the idea of 
selfish ambition. They are preaching the gospel, but it's not about godliness and purity. They're preaching the gospel, but it's not about how do we live in such a way that pleases God, that God has called us to live. Instead, it's whatever they can proclaim that will get them what they want. The idea here is is that they're doing it for for pay, to, to get a gain out of it, a monetary gain. That's kind of the idea of the word there. It's erethea. Strong drive for personal success, interestingly, without moral inhibitions. They will do whatever and say whatever to get the success that they want. This is the group that is preaching Christ. They wanted their name to be known like Paul's or even more, and they didn't care how they got there. They wanted the current adoration of men more than the future well done of God. Their minds were on the temporal success of this world. And they're willing to do whatever it took to bring them success, even at the expense of heavenly reward. Have you thought about that? When we do ministry, when we live lives, are we living godly because of who God is? Or are we just trying to get something from God? Or as we're doing ministry, are we doing it in such a way that it glorifies and honors God? Or are we just trying to get the praise of men? Are we just hoping for an attaboy from a pulpit or from a crowd of people? When we do something good, is it just so that we can give a testimony about it and people can say how good we are? Why do we do what we do? It's these motivations that Paul is pointing out. It's hard to know men's hearts. You know, it's interesting that Paul would make these claims about their motives. It's hard for us to know men's hearts, but their actions point out their motivation. Their actions point out their motivations. If their actions are laying aside godliness and pursuit of holiness and biblical doctrine, if their actions are accumulating people through extra biblical attractions, if their actions are attaining the things of this world and looking like this world in order to populate, to be popular in this world, then they are full of selfish ambition. That's what the idea of this rivalry is. What does scripture have to say about that? They will never be satisfied. They will never be satisfied. Ecclesiastes chapter five, verse 10 says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. It's emptiness. Matthew 5, verse six says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. They shall be satisfied. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Matthew 6, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, talking about the temporal things, talking about the things that we need. He says, don't worry about those things, but put your focus on the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Psalm 16, verse 11 says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy 
At your own, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Where do we get our satisfaction? Where do we get our satisfaction? Is it in this world? Is it in the things of this world? Is it, is, is it in the, the applause of this world? Even believers. Is it in the applause of other believers? Is it, is it in the handshake of other believers? Man, pastors, we are so in danger of this because we have good people. And thankfully, even here, we have we have people who, who encourage us. And if we're not careful, we can begin to soak that up. We can be, begin to think so much better of ourselves. Well, that really, you, you know, you're right. That really was a good sermon this morning. Thank you. You know, too bad the power went out. We didn't get to have it recorded for everybody. But no, I mean, we, if we're not careful, we could absolutely be right there. Or we may be preaching the gospel correctly. The words coming out of our mouth may be right with the, with the doctrines of Scripture, but in our heart could be selfishness, a selfish ambition. The next word here is not sincerely. It's hagnos. It means not purely, free from secondary motives. Paul's already showed us those secondary motives. Let me contrast this real fast between Paul's motive for how he interacted with people. In 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 12, this is a little long, so I'm going to go quickly. But just listen to the difference between how Paul is explaining how these preachers in Rome are acting and how he acted to the Thessalonians. He says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, interesting, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you. Like a nursing mother caring for her own children, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we, ex we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Do you see the contrast between the way that Paul interacted and preached the gospel selflessly, even working night and day to not be a hindrance to the gospel? And that's not the only passage we could go to and see his attitude towards preaching the gospel. And yet there are those who are not doing so here in Rome. Such a stark contrast. 
And finally, about this group, we see that they are they're attempting to afflict Paul. In verse 17, the former proclaimed Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. This word inflict is, inflict is flipsis. It means affliction or distress. It's an oppressive state of physical, mental, social, or economic adversity. Now, they probably couldn't get to him physically, being chained to a guard. But they were doing everything they can to make his life miserable. They were doing everything they could to try to make him miserable. As if everything that he had done was worthless. As if it was nothing. Part of the reason these men were acting this way was that they were simply trying to cause him distress. Can you imagine that? Here in the body of Christ, Jesus prayed for unity in the body of Christ, and yet here in the body of Christ are men preaching the gospel of Christ, but doing so in a way to try to afflict Paul, to distress Paul. It's almost unthinkable. But let me ask you this. Are you guilty of the same thing? Say, I would, I would never do something like that. Do you look for ways to put others in the body down so that you can look good? It's not just enough for you to have the accolades, but you got to make somebody else look worse. Do you try to take over someone else's work in an effort to show them up, to make them feel inadequate, as if they weren't being used by God? Do you always have a story that tops theirs in some spiritual achievement? Are you a one-upper? Those don't seem as big a deal on, on the surface, but really what are they doing? They're putting someone else down to lift ourselves up. They're causing affliction on someone else to make us be exalted. How often do we do that without even really thinking about it? Paul says the contrast here is that we should be doing all to the glory of God, but so often we do much to the glory of self. Paul's contrasting this group with wrong motives with one that does have good motives. We see this word eudokia means good pleasure, pleasing. It's translated goodwill. It has the idea of a delightful, fixed intention of benevolent favor. Fixed intention of benevolent favor. They were preaching the gospel of Christ out of love. They were preaching the gospel out of love for God who had saved them. They were preaching the gospel out of love for lost souls who needed to hear the message of Jesus Christ and even preaching the gospel out of love for Paul. They, were, they saw Paul's persecution and they understood why it was happening. Go back to verse 16. It says, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. He says, they understand why I'm here. And it's not some human thing. It's a God thing. And that he is advancing the gospel and they are on board with it. And they, out of love for God and lost souls and Paul, are preaching the gospel in love, not for personal gain, 
but for heavenly gain. Not for earthly accolades, but for heavenly rewards. They saw Paul's faithfulness as an example to emulate, not as a competitor to beat. Is that how we live? Is that how we interact with one another? Is that how we minister to one another inside, outside the body of Christ? Is that how we share the gospel? Just in love. Love for God. Love for the lost and love for his church. We know that these uh, people were, were preaching the gospel. They were preaching the true gospel. The last point I want to see is the unexpected contentment. The unexpected contentment, what then, Paul says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. He just told us all these horrible motives that these people are, are preaching the gospel with. And he says, whether it's, whether it's with good intentions or bad intentions, how do we respond, he says. What then? How do we respond, he says, in every way, the gospel is preached. These were not people who were preaching a false gospel. We know, I won't go through the, take the time and read through the passages. You can find them yourselves. Romans 16, 17 through 19, 2 Corinthians 11, 12, 15, Galatians 1, 6 through 9, um, even others, where Paul is very clear on how he interacts with and calls out those who preach another gospel. We don't see him doing that here in this passage. So they, they were preaching the true gospel. The, the words that they were preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ were true. They were biblical. But the motives behind them were false. The motives behind them were selfish. Paul is not excusing their failures because he's not calling out the doctrinal issues. He's not excusing them. Rather, he's calling them out. He's not naming names, but he's calling them out and saying, look, there are some who are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ with the wrong motive. And he's warning the Philippians to be on guard for that. But inwardly, and his testimony to the Philippians and his testimony to us today, his disposition is one of contentment. Contentment. Why? Very simply, because Christ is proclaimed. Paul could say, I'm content. I know they're doing it with wrong motives. I can't control them. I'm calling them out. But whether it's the wrong motives or the right motives, Christ is proclaimed. And I'm content with that. Is that our attitude when we look at others in the body of Christ who maybe even we question whether they're in the body of Christ because of how they live or how they, how they do church? And maybe they seem to be more successful. They have bigger numbers. They have, they have more money. They have all these different things that from an earthly perspective we look at and we say, that's success. They're doing well. 
And yet when we look at them, we evaluate what they're doing and, and, and we see that the, it doesn't line up with Scripture completely and, and it looks like the way that they're acting, there may be some, some bad motives there. Do we get angry? Do we, do we begin to become uh, people who are rivals as well? Do we begin to become people who want to show them up? Well, we'll, we'll show you how it's really done. We'll do it the Bible way and we're going we're gonna to show you or do we have the attitude of Paul where well, we are just content knowing that we are obedient we are content that the gospel of Jesus Christ is being preached and that people are hearing the gospel and being saved that is the lesson that Paul desired the Philippians to understand nothing in this world will stop the gospel and whether it is preached by those who have good motives or preached by those who have bad motives, we can rest confidently in God that he is doing work and that his gospel is going forth. Paul could be content through persecution and even rejoice because he understood the power of the gospel is not in the proclaimer. Did you catch that? The power of the gospel is not in the proclaimer, but it is in the one who is being proclaimed. Are you thankful for that this morning? It's not about us. It's all about him. Father, we thank you that our efforts many times, which are feeble, that are in our, in our view futile, Lord, we know that you are working. You are working through us when we have the right motives. You are even working through us when we have the wrong motives, Lord. And I, I pray that, that as we go forth and as we, we seek to, to obey you, as we seek to serve you, as we seek to share the gospel of Jesus Christ in our, in our spheres of influence, as we seek to reach out to the neighborhood around us here, uh, in this neighborhood, as we seek to reach out to the city of liberty, Lord, with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you would help us not to get caught up in what other churches are doing, what other preachers are doing, what other uh, believers are doing, and 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 trying to uh, trying to rival them, trying to outdo them, trying to to pursue these these earthly successes, Lord. I pray that you would help us to simply be content knowing that your word is going forth and that people's lives are being changed. And I pray that you would help us to not be like these preachers who preached Christ out of wrong motives, but that you would help us to be people who preach Christ out of love, love for you and love for lost souls and love for one another. Lord, may you be glorified in our lives, and may you be glorified in our proclamation of the gospel. For it is for your glory that we do it, and it is in your name we pray. Amen.